Hi, my name is Tom Jennings, and this is the 24 Frames Cast. And before I begin, if you are new to the show, these episodes are just focused on the Criterion Collection, and what I'm doing is going to be reviewing the previous month's releases. So this episode will actually be about February's Criterion releases. Um, and if you are familiar with the show, I'd like to apologise because there was meant to be some more shows out in March. I did tweet out that there were going to be a few, but a uh, couple of um, mishaps have occurred. One being that my work got incredibly busy and I uh, really couldn't kind of dedicate time to the show. And the other ones that had a slight technical problem as well on my Mac and the, the uh, recording software. So hopefully it should be working now. Um, there will definitely be um, another episode out next week. And also I put up our, on Monday on the exclusive page the next um, instalment of the James Bond retrospective which was a look at um, Diamonds Are Forever. So if you can actually uh, stomach hearing about that film head on over there and uh, download it and enjoy. Just a little mind as well, those shows won't appear on the feed at all, they are exclusive to the blog. So if you do want to um, find out when they hit the uh, the exclusive page. Um, I would recommend uh, either subscribe to the blog or subscribe to my Twitter, which I'll give you the address at the end of the episode and you can uh, check that for updates. So anyway, to um, get on with this episode, uh, quite a good month for Criterion, I think. We also kind of hit the landmark of having the 600 release and I was kind of looking back at the uh, release and I thought, God, what a varied month, what a kind of a great uh, way of I suppose demonstrating the variety of films in the Criterion Collection because we had kind of a uh, a Japanese Japanese samurai film, um, a micro-budget American independent made a couple of years ago, a science fiction TV series from Germany, uh, a I suppose a kind of piece of filmed theatre, and kind of rounded things off with a bona fide Hollywood classic. So to get things underway, I will be taking a look at Criterion number Spine 596, Three Outlaw Samurai. This was director Harada Gosh's first feature film, and he went on for quite a kind of a, a long and prestigious career, but for some reason he didn't really kind of hit the heights of fame in the West that the likes of kind of Kurosawa did. And He's been compared, or at least his kind of career in many ways, has kind of mirrored that of kind of Sam Peckinpah as a kind of filmmaker who, even when he was making um, studio pictures, was always something of a little bit of an outsider. And perhaps that has something to do with the fact that he was a notorious perfectionist and he was something of a um, tyrant on sets. Even the legendary Toshio Mifune actually bailed on one of his projects because uh, he became so fed up with the director. But Three Outlaw Samurai was actually his first feature film and it was an adaption of a popular TV series which, as I understand, has now been kind of lost to time. And this is, a, this is no kind of cheap TV spin-off kind of TV movie, if you like, and not to have any of the kind of aesthetic trappings of being a TV movie. It is... I, I suppose it's a cinematic experience as you could possibly hope for and I guess the kind of the reason why that might surprise me in a way is that I, I think when you kind of look at but the past kind of like 15 years especially the kind of the sensibilities of TV production have kind of begun to mirror that of feature film and you know I, I think especially I've just finished the absolutely incredible series Game of Thrones and it was like my girlfriend and I were saying it was like a 10-hour film you know it was you know, kind of the effects now I think have kind of got up there and 
when you kind of watched him, it was yeah, it, it does have this sort of epic scale to it. And when you look at kind of TV shows from the kind of yesteryear, sometimes I think you can tell that they are kind of very kind of clearly framed for a small, small screen. You can obviously tell there are kind of budgetary constraints in place. But you would never think that Three Outlaw Samurai has was kind of spawned from uh, television. As I understand, this was kind of seen as a an origin story for the TV show. And on the evidence of this, I really would like to see this show. It's a, it's a dreadful shame that it's actually been lost. But as a kind of a film debut, I would have to actually say that this is one of the most impressive of film debuts that I've ever seen. I don't know, you know, where it kind of ranks alongside the all-time greats, but certainly I was pretty impressed with what I actually saw and the story is a fairly kind of typical samurai tale of honour and loyalty when a ronin samurai played by Testuro Tamba comes across a group of poor peasants holding the daughter of a corrupt local magistrate hostage for his cruelty that he has shown toward them. Sakon, as the samurai is actually called, decides to stay and help the peasants the local magistrate sends some thugs and two other samurais to kill the peasants and soon the three unite to fight back against the magistrate. Samurai films are nothing new to the Criterion Collection. And indeed, I think, you know, in fact, Gosh himself actually has another um, one, which is sort of the beast, which is spine number 311, which I can certainly recommend. I, as I, as I, I might be wrong on this, but I think they are actually kind of re might be re-releasing these films on blu-ray it's either that or one of the other samurai trilogies i hope it's this one anyway because i really would like to say kind of see the upgrade in that but i think well I, i've said it before um in relation to the criterion collection is that sometimes i'm a little bit surprised by some of the films they do include and some of the genres that they don't include now the kind of the uh, british equivalent of the criterion collection is the masters of series uh, masters of cinema series sorry by eureka and um I'm often quite impressed. They too actually have got some films, um, which uh, samurai films in their collection, which are in the Criterion Collection as well. But I'm, I'm, one of the things I do love about what they do is that they um, they also have some animation in there. And I sort of, when I look at the Criterion Collection, sometimes I sort of think, well, you know, do we really need another type of film of this kind? You know, would it perhaps you know, could you include some kind of um, animation or indeed just some other kind of uh, corner of cinema that people might not be familiar with because I do think you know I would say it's overloaded with samurai films but there are certainly quite a few of them now three outlaw samurai is one of the finest examples of the genre in the collection however I do kind of have to sort of say that I kind of recommend it with a kind of a caveat because in some respects, I think I've seen this film, or I feel like I've seen this film many times before, and it is obviously has its own unique merits, of which I will get to in a minute, but I think I was a little perhaps jaded going into this of the, the Samurai film, and I have to confess, I was a little bit bored at times, and I'm not kind of sure whether this happened to be because I was watching the film perhaps a little bit later or night at night, and I was just, you know, not in the mood for it, or because I've, you know, like I said, I've seen this type of film so many times before. But what I think you can't deny about it is that Gosh directing the film is at times frankly incredible. A memorable film opening is something that always stays with you. And I, I think of perhaps my favourite of all time, which is um, Once Upon a Time in the West. And yeah, just... For anyone who has a vague interest in cinema, you, you can't watch that scene and just absolutely 
love it and it's such a big thing because at the moment I'm in the process of uh, in September actually I'm going to be shooting my first uh, short film and I've been really trying to kind of like agonise as to how to begin it and I was sort of thinking and it, it sounds completely ridiculous and slightly pretentious or whatever but I sort of thought this is going to be that I suppose the first time that I ever make a film and what will the first like 30 seconds of that opening uh, say about me as a filmmaker and certainly I was kind of conscious of this when throughout Will Sam and I began because the opening I thought was an absolute near way perfect to kind of announce yourself to the world of cinema coupled with a great score by Takashi Jumi and again I have to apologize for my pronunciations of foreign names I am absolutely hopeless at it I, w I always kind of make this recommendation to people actually um, who listen to the show which is don't listen to a word I say when I'm pronouncing names. Just go on IMDb or something like that, or Wikipedia, and look them up yourself. Because I am probably butchering them and causing all kinds of cultural vandalism in the process. So I do apologise to um, listeners off for that respect. But back to this opening, it's such a wonderful sense of atmosphere and indeed purpose because. This film doesn't really kind of waste any time in kind of building up its characters. The narrative kicks in almost immediately. And indeed, it kind of it's a very narrative-driven film. Um, I think I, I counted about eight different storylines going on in it. And it only has a running time of about an hour and a half. And the scenes are just so economical in how they get straight to the core of the story and kind of get telling it. And in a way, I really enjoy that because I hate to do this every time I do a podcast episode, but invariably you have to look at just how bloated some films are today and how just they're just too long. And I don't mind epic cinema. I don't mind three hour, four hour running times as long as what I'm seeing actually has a kind of a, a reason or a purpose to be there. You know, obviously, occasionally... Um, something like Lawrence of Arabia, you know, some of those massive fister shots and stuff like that. You could almost say they're self-indulgent to an extent, but I mean, at least it's it's great eye candy. Something like, you know, I haven't seen it yet, but it's like the new Transformers film, which I'm reliably sure is just scene after scene of absolute puerile bloody nonsense, when really there's a far better story that can be told. And this is what I like. Gosh, he just gets straight in there and gets on with it straight away. I would imagine this might have something to do with the fact that obviously the people who might be going to see the film will be familiar with the TV series, so they have that kind of prior knowledge of the, how they met and things like that. So in a respect, I, you know, it might be a product of that, a bit like, I suppose, um, Serenity uh, film. And you know, if you're familiar with the characters, you don't really need all the build-up or whatever. But coming into the film afresh, I don't really know anything about the TV series. I've never, obviously never seen an episode because uh, they're not actually available. I absolutely love these kind of films for the fact that they're, they're black and white photography and the scope frame because there is a, an undeniable look to Japanese samurai films which you just so clearly don't get anywhere else and this I think is one of the finest examples of that on a kind of a, I've got a um, 50 inch television I didn't I didn't pick up the blu-ray of this actually but uh, even on the standard definition DVD it looked pretty impressive I might even um, I think I may even be considering uh, selling off my DVD and getting hold of the Blu-ray because I, I did sort of love the imagery so much. But for kind of the widescreen epicness of it, I don't think it's a particularly kind of epic film as such. It's actually quite small in its comparative scale. But Gosha shoots scenes with a kind of grandeur, which 
I think shows many characters in the frame before cutting to a kind of a solitary person watching on. And what you are therefore encouraged to think about, I think, is the kind of scale in the film in terms of its thematic elements. And these are indeed, I think, the most important aspects of the story. That this kind of seemingly kind of small little kind of tale going on actually has a far larger universality to it. One of the more interesting little kind of directorial traits that I saw was that Gosha sometimes frames a scene and he actually blocks the top portion of a character out and more often than not they're actually talking these people. And it happened more than once where I was kind of convinced that it was obviously entirely planned. And I began to think, you know, why would he even do this? And for me at least, I found myself focusing on the other character in the scene who wasn't actually talking and how they were reacting to what was being said. And the only kind of thing I could think of perhaps why this was going on was that we're being asked to consider the reaction of the person listening and judge not someone on what they're actually saying, but instead on how they're actually reacting and what this kind of actually says about their character. I think it's quite an interesting way of using dialogue because you're you're hearing someone talk, yet it's the fact that you're watching the, the effect those words have on someone else. And they don't actually have to say anything for you to be able to read what's actually going on. I've said it many times before, but dialogue is such an overrated aspect of film that, again, it's been quite an interesting exercise, a short film I'm doing. I think there's about, probably about six or seven spoken lines. It's completely minimal. And when I've shown people the script, they've often kind of come back to me and sort of said they don't really understand it. And I sort of said, well, wait until the kind of the, the, you see the film and then kind of tell me if you don't understand it because I think a lot of people nowadays we're so accustomed to again going back to kind of Michael Davis it's kind of total kind of incessant talking and moronic chatter that we sort of feel we kind of need it and it's one of the reasons why I think the artist perhaps kind of raised so many eyebrows was because I think it's made people a lot of people realize that you just don't really need um, dialogue to tell a story convincingly and um, I've not actually seen the artist yet but I'm actually really looking forward to watching it because uh, again I got I, I've said it before I, I got uh, stuck in bloody Oscar hating rut and the it was on at funny times um, after it it was it played for quite a while but I, I was going to watch it towards the latter end of its run in the cinema and it was playing at funny times I think it was around a certain act I was seeing everyone kind of talking about it and going on kind of so self-congratulating that, you know, they'd, they'd sat through a silent film and all, you know, aren't they wonderful? And I, tragically, I lost interest in the artist, but I will go back to it when it comes out because I've heard it's pretty great and I can't wait to see it. But anyway, going back to um, Three Outlaws Samurai, you watch many of these films and I've never really noticed it so much before, but... The lighting in Three Outlaw Samurai was hugely stylized, a lot more than what I'm used to seeing. And I wouldn't go as far as to say it was kind of like expressionistic in how it was actually used, but, or sorry, uh, harkening to expressionism cinema, but certainly there was an almost sort of a noir sensibility that prevails with the shades being cast across the face and characters lurking in the background, kind of coming into the light. It's absolutely wonderful stuff, and I was... Um, Really, I suppose if I was a little, say I was a little bit bored by the story, I certainly wasn't um, bored with how it looked. I mentioned before that the film doesn't kind of have, it doesn't feel bloated or anything like that. And, you know, again, there isn't that kind of an ounce of fight in it. But this kind of restraint, I suppose, in the narrative also extends to the fight scenes. And 
lots of people I know who, when they talk about these films, they expect to have these kind of almost Kill Bill-esque showdowns in all these films. And you don't often get them because what you see in the samurai film, and so in the samurai genre, I suppose, is that the, the fight scenes themselves are normally kind of quite swift and brutal. And in this respect, Three Outlaw Samurai, I really kind of thought, um, kind of ups the ante a little bit because you don't get time to really kind of, I suppose, um, enjoy these these scenes. They really are kind of quite swift. And I, I suppose the word for it would be visceral. I, I actually found them a little bit unpleasant because you can sort of see, you all, I certainly kind of feel the pain of the kind of the blade slashing. And again, I, I, I really enjoy the way that he doesn't kind of get straight in in the action. There's not kind of like rapid edits and cuts. They play out before you in a way that there you can kind of absorb them and actually kind of enjoy them. And indeed, actually follow what is actually going on and who's fighting who. Uh, ra rapid editing is often used by filmmakers in the modern age, especially to simulate movement and speed. And when you see a, film, a fight taking place before you in a glorious widescreen frame, give me that any day over kind of really having to cut in on the action. There is though, and I, as I sort of mentioned, the kind of the Kill Bill element of it, there is a, um, a quite a, a nasty little moment as well where we do see a bit of a blood squirt and um, I, I didn't notice it first, I actually re-round the film a little bit just to kind of see if, I'd, I, was, if I thought I was seeing things, but you do get this kind of glorious um, spurt of blacker than black blood that comes up over one of the characters and uh, I don't think those scenes are there for us really to kind of enjoy as such, I do think we're there to be kind of shocked by the violence, indeed I was a little bit kind of um, put off by it, but in a good way, of course, I am, I'm not some kind of prude or, or am I particularly screamish. You don't see any like, limbs being held off, don't worry about that, but um, all in all, I was incredibly impressed with the way in which those moments were handled. I think, however, that I would actually contest, though, that really kind of Three Outlaw Samurai uh, is a fairly dark exploration of the themes of loyalty and honour, and these are often crucial in these types of films. Two of the samurai, uh, Kiko and Sakura, both begin by working for the magistrate and Sakura actually defects the peasants when he learns of their poor treatment. Yet, Kiko won't on the basis that he has already sworn loyalty to the magistrate. Obviously he does eventually, but he's originally quite hesitant. And you know, what then does his loyalty actually mean? You know, is there any loyal, is there any nobility, sorry, in actually being loyal? And I think this really must have some kind of reference to World War II in it because it was loyalty that almost led the country to the brink of an almost unbelievable apocalypse. It was the kind of the, the blind loyalty actually warranted? I've seen, I think it was on Tower, I've seen footage of mothers jumping off cliffs with their babies than rather than surrender to the Americans, all because of this apparent loyalty to the motherland. And you know, let's you know, look at that, that horrendous moment when these people are doing this and then think that a few months later, Japan actually surrendered and capitulated. So total kind of meaningless death in the name of loyalty. Although all three samurai eventually come to the aid of the peasants, betrayal is a massive element of the film. The magistrate's daughter even turns against her own father after he breaks a pledge not to kill the peasants after they hand her back. And I think in this world, betrayal is a kind of survival instinct. You essentially do not know who to trust and therefore it's infinitely dangerous place to live. It's quite, I suppose, a bleak um, outlook, if you were. And I, 
again, I, you know, I, I do wonder what, what this sort of saying about contemporary Japan and trying to kind of reconcile the experiences of the war with the new age. I don't think the characters are particularly deep in terms of their personalities. Again, this might be because all of that's already been done in the TV series, but I actually think it's more archetypal in nature. And there is, a, I suppose, a universality to the story, which makes me wonder why this film wasn't kind of picked up for an American remake into Westerns. I suppose in a way, you know, you could argue it was sort of done with the Magnificent Seven. Obviously, there were seven of them and three of these guys, but that kind of, you know, the the uh, the, no, the noble guys coming to the aid of uh, the peasants certainly was one that, you know, would have translated well, I suppose, to that genre. But I don't know, the reasons might be um, contractual or something like that, we never know. But I certainly think that this one has... Um, a message and a meaning which I think obviously transcends national boundaries. There are some elements of it which I think are very familiar to anyone who's familiar with these films. The peasants themselves, they always seem to act in the same way in these types of films. They kind of jump around and kind of, they don't they, they don't seem to be capable of normal speech. It's this kind of shouting. They, 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 they sort of remind me of like when you see kids trying to act and they kind of assume that acting means shouting and running around a lot. I, I, I'm convinced there must have been an agency in Japan that um, had a uh, a roster of these people and if you needed them they could just send 10 down who could just run around and jump around and shout and scream. Women too aren't exactly treated with much respect. They seem to be either abused, raped or killed in uh, samurai films and certainly this one doesn't kind of um, tread any, uh, so blaze a new trail in terms of feminism. But overall, Three Out or Samuel was an interesting film, if not an entirely gripping one for me. And again, I say that with the caveat that I might just be slightly jaded. Um, I've, I've watched a lot of these types of films over the past year. And I dare say in a few years were I to go back to this, I would kind of be uh, thinking a lot more highly of it. But if you were coming into Samuel films afresh, I think this would be a great place to start. And... On the basis of how good it looks visually alone, it is well worth checking out if you were thinking about studying the genre. Picture quality on the DVD uh, was outstanding. Um, I know for the Blu-ray.com gave the Blu-ray um, a rating of four and a half out of five for the image quality. Sound is in mono, but it was free of any kind of hiss and noise making, I think, for a kind of highly pleasing audio-visual experience. This one was actually a bare-bones release as well. There was only an essay that came with it and a trailer. But I would say that uh, I did really like the cover art for this, and I'm actually thinking of trying to kind of blow it out and Photoshop out the Criterion bits because I think it would look quite nice on the wall. But overall, good release. Um, Perhaps not for the extras, but certainly the film is very well, very interesting and worth checking out. Okay, next up was Spine Number 597 and Len Dernan's 2010 Tiny Furniture. I suppose it is indicative of the fact that Tiny Furniture might not be to everyone's taste when one of these special features on the disc is a interview with Paul Schrader in which he actually talks about people's apparent justifications for hating the film and indeed the argument that he presents is um, I suppose very uh, compelling in the fact that essentially people ask the question why her and not me and that's certainly something I have actually come across in my time I used to work with a director who because by virtue of the fact that he had made a few films well short films and some low budget stuff 
he thought that the phone should be ringing 24-7 with multi-million pound offers to go and work in Los Angeles. Part of the reason why I think that perhaps didn't happen was because he had absolutely no discernible talent whatsoever. He was just an egotistical prick who deluded himself into thinking that he was something a lot more than he was. And um, I don't know if you're listening to this episode, but if you are and you know exactly who you are and exactly who I'm talking about, and you are just a complete prick. Anyway, just a slight uh, kind of a bitchy session there from someone in my past, but it kind of interests me because I, I watched that little feature with Paul Schrader after I'd seen this film and I could kind of agree with everything he was saying on the basis that people just sort of look at it and go, well, I, I can do that and I've made stuff like that and I haven't made it. So, well, that, you know, damn her and, you know, Lena Dernham. And she was only something like 23 when she made this film. And Paul Schrader, by the way, actually said that he really enjoyed it. But I have to be brutally honest with you, I didn't enjoy it and I will kind of explain my reasons for this in a little bit but going into it I had heard of Tiny Furniture it's actually getting a as I'm recording this on the Friday it'll probably be hitting the feed um, tomorrow which will be Saturday of course but I actually think it's getting a cinema release today in the UK and I was kind of reading a few things about it and one of the words that kept coming up was this whole kind of term mumblecore which I've, I've heard it banded around before I think I first heard of it on the Criterion cast and now we're talking about a film. And I've never seen a film that belongs in this, I suppose, genre. I don't even know if it is a genre or that kind of come under this category. And quite frankly, I kind of didn't really want to to, to see them. And just on the basis of that alone. You know, and the kind of the side argument is apparently Tiny Furniture isn't a mumblecore film for a variety of reasons. I don't. I don't really know what the kind of defining characteristics of the genre are, but I think Paul Schrader said that they were films made by me, about me, or something like that. And I think they've been kind of around with us for a while, uh, which I think, like, you know, things like Slacker and Dazed and Confused, are they kind of mumblecore films? I don't know. Whatever, but the whole thing, it kind of reeks of this sort of whole hipster movement. And just a quick side note here, I fucking hate this whole hipster thing. And, you know, I was walking through Manchester the other day, and... I, I saw people who I, I who who I'd assume would probably act in their own their own kind of mumblecore films, and it's this kind of very kind of ironic dress sense, which is kind of deliberately kind of mismatching or meant to be retro and stuff like that. And it, the whole thing kind of irritates me. And when I heard that Tiny Furniture was part of the mumblecore thing, I was instantly a little bit I had my back up, but. I don't know when I sort of went into it. It wasn't because it was this sort of whole hipster thing. There were multiple issues which I had with it and firstly you know, I think you have to kind of take your hat off really to Dernham because you know 23 years old she goes and makes a film and cinema needs more female directors and I would actually say cinema needs more young people making films because it's all very well with people like you know kind of like Super 8 which is a film I absolutely despised um I, I sort of thought it was it, it was trying to be this kind of homage to youth and the thing it got me was that it was just completely, it wasn't a homage to youth or anything like that. I just thought it was um, a group of kind of older people making a film about their apparent youth through kind of rose-tinted glasses. And it's good, you know, I've worked with young people before. And one of the things I absolutely hate is when kind of adults try and tell them what it is 
that their life and culture is like. And one of the best examples I can think of was um, a, a youth-orientated website that a local authority had done, and it had words like, you know, yo kids spelt with a Z, and this was supposed to be aimed at 16-year-olds, and it was like, it, it's tragic in a way. And I think, you know, Durnham, I think, although she's only 23, you know, I'm obviously kind of a bit older than a teenager, but it is interesting to have a younger person's perspective on the world, especially through cinema. And I do genuinely hope that she earns a career as opposed to kind of being handed one on the basis of the fact that she's kind of made this film. But you know, getting slightly kind of sidetracked, you know, this is, I suppose, a true auteurist piece. You know, she acts in it, she directs it, she wrote it. And making it on a kind of micro budget, I believe, I've heard rumours it was about $50,000. I think it shows what you can do in the modern era with um, the equipment that's available. This film was actually shot on a Canon SLR camera. I think it was the Canon SD, I think, or the 5D or something like that. I'm, I'm actually thinking of considering buying one myself. You know, they're only, they cost about a thousand pounds and you stick an anamorphic lens on the thing. You know, this film was shot in scope as well. And they look incredibly good. And it, it's amazing, isn't it, you, for you know, an outlay of probably with the, along the lens, you're looking at about two and a half grand, three grand. But for three grand, you can achieve uh, the kind of look that people were kind of in the early part of the last decade were really kind of, you know, getting so excited by. I've just bought an Apple Mac as well, you know. And for that, you know, so basically for £5,000, you could set yourself up with a pretty decent camera and a near professional editing suite. You know, how far we've come, I remember when I was at college, um, editing on videotape and things like that, you know, or old steam becks and stuff, and it was, it was absolutely ridiculous. And the, you know, the, the sheer kind of improvements in technology, I think, are really kind of um, impressive. And obviously Durnham's jumped on this to make this story. But what is it actually about? Well, Durnham plays a character called Aurora, who has just finished university and has hum come home. And really, the film is just about her moving back into her mother's um, Siri, played by a real-life mother with her sister Nadine. They live in a kind of uh, loft apartment type affair. Um, mother is a ever-so-fashionable photographer. She kind of does... Well, the, the, the aforementioned tiny furniture comes from the kind of the miniatures that she kind of uses in her photography. But really, it's just about Aura kind of walking around and kind of adapting to her new life. Now, certainly this is an experience which that I'm familiar with. Um, coming home from university, and coming home from university was not a particularly pleasant experience for me, to be honest with you. I went from a, kind of, I went from Sheffield, which is a pretty decent city, to back to a small village in Kent, and I felt like I had kind of gone absolutely nowhere. And I can certainly, I know it's like you go and do a degree and every day you're, uh, in my case, anyway, you're reading books and you're watching films and then you suddenly arrive back home and the real world, as miserable as it sounds, is a fairly kind of boring place for most people. You know, there's, there's only a small percentage of us that actually kind of really kind of have a job that is what we really, really want to do. For the most part, we kind of do jobs which, you know, if you were to sort of say to us when we were 15 or, you know, in a few years you'd be doing this, you'd be like, oh, fuck that, you know, I don't want to do that for the rest of my life. And you know, Aura has that kind of um, problem where she's sort of, you know, what, what do you do? How do you sort of make sense of it all? And certainly, you know, that was something I really identified with this character. But it was only the situation that I could sort of um, sympathise with her on because very quickly, I think the problems with tiny furniture are apparent. And 
Firstly, I think there is the, the kind of the issue with the fact that clearly Mummy is absolutely wadded and it's that type of, you know, poverty that I suppose she's kind of pleading, which is that it's that poverty where you might not be earning any money, you might be working a meaningless job, but you go back to a mother and father, well, a mother in this case, and a home environment that is, I suppose, really a kind of a life of luxury. And the dialogue that Dern, and perhaps she wrote all of this, it wasn't kind of improvised, which apparently is a big mumblecore thing, it's all about improvisation, but apparently this wasn't improvised, she kind of did write all the dialogue. And one of the things that interests me is on the Criterion website, the kind of the little kind of blurb about the film says, as painfully confessional as it is amusing, Tiny Furniture is an authentic, incisive portrait of a young woman at a crossroads. I could not disagree with this statement enough, purely on the basis, on ter in terms of the word authentic being used to describe it, because I don't think I have seen a film in recent memory where the dialogue was so unauthentic. And this is the thing, if she's basing this on her real life experiences, and these are kind of lifted from her own um, interactions with people, then I think I hate this film even more than I kind of do, because I have never heard people communicate like this to each other. In, in my, I suppose in my uh, experience on sphere of influence, sphere of friends, or whatever, I don't think I've ever heard people talk like this. And if this is actually how her family communicate, then they are an absolute bunch of knobs because it is this kind of it, the dialogue is so self-aware and so deliberately used every single word has a kind of premeditation about it that's just so annoying to hear and I I was gonna I was tempted to kind of pull some clips from it but I really couldn't be bothered to be honest with you because I, some people like, would listen to that, would listen to them and find it hilariously funny, which obviously some people do with tiny furniture. But for me, I was just sat there thinking, if 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 a mother and daughter talk like this in the real world, then they must have such a bizarre relationship. You know, what has actually gone wrong? You know, probably the type of family who, you know, as a, a seven-year-old, if you make some kind of offhand comment, pack you off to therapy because you know, that's not a normal thing for a child to say. It needs to be analysed and discussed, and we need to kind of find out the proper motivation for saying it. And I just absolutely was so disengaged by the characters just because of they were opening their mouth. And, and Durham injects moments of kind of just total, utter fake melodrama into some scenes. And I think that they're supposed to be funny. I'm sure they're meant to be funny. But I was just sat there thinking, shut up, you stupid little girl. Don't... You know, there's a scene where she, she kicks off with her mother and she's kind of, oh, you hate me and all this kind of stuff. And I really I don't know. What, was it? If it was meant to be funny, it certainly wasn't. If it was meant to be dramatic, it certainly wasn't. And I'm just sat there where the mother's kind of doing this, oh, you know, I've learned in hipster mother parenting school just to be kind of non-confrontational when, you know, just let her do her own thing and then let her go off and think about it and analyse it. Oh, God. It's it's a film full of that type of thing. And really, when the narrative, I suppose, if you can even call that, is so slender, I mean, one of the things that happens is that Aura meets up with an old friend, Charlotte, who 
is the kind of archetypal friend that your mother disapproves of. You know, even Charlotte, she's um, she's British, but at least she's meant to be British in the in the film, and you know, she's this kind of, I suppose fuck up friend who Aura kind of hooks up with from times gone past but even their friendship I mean it's so fake and sort of you know they haven't seen each other for years but suddenly the next like within two days they're like bosom buddies again and tattooing each other and stuff like this and oh I, I was so just I suppose I was so aware of just how disingenuine it all was and how fake and pretentious all the kind of friendships were one of the kind of the other things as well you know, or kind of like hooks up with two guys and they're both just self-absorbed pricks basically. And we of course, yeah, we have a sex scene and this being a kind of quirky, cool independent, the sex scene just can't kind of take place normally. We have to have it sort of shot in a, um, what looks like an, a large aluminium pipe. And I'm just sat there thinking, do people actually do this? They might, tramps might do it, I don't know. But it was just tragic really and I think it was obviously an attempt at visual humour but it simply wasn't funny and yes it's meant to be awkward and I, I suppose I was actually kind of more concerned that someone was actually watching me watch the film and would kind of walk away thinking that this was something I was watching for kind of pleasure or something like that because it, it really wasn't this actually for the first time during the 24 frames cast I've got to be honest with you this actually felt like homework doing watching this film and I, I've spoken about it before in previous episodes, but I have a buy-in of about five minutes, really, with a film, whether I'm, I, I can tell whether I'm going to like it or hate it. The buy-in here took after about three seconds, and I was just like, no, nah, I'm not going to be down with this. And I've, I've heard them um, kind of described as a sort of a Woody Allen-type figure, and certainly there is a connection between the two. I don't think it's in, in cruel of me to say that um, she's not particularly good-looking. And I do admire this, you know, she hasn't got a kind of a great body or anything like that, but she doesn't kind of... Um, hide under kind of downy clothing you do see her walking around in just a t-shirt and knickers and stuff like that I think that's quite refreshing because obviously films are you know really shot through the male gaze aren't they and we kind of you know that's why we have to sort of have you know all the bikini clad beauties in films and this isn't and I think that's something I really did sort of admire about it there was an honesty to it where in a way you know people do walk around in their knickers and t-shirt in their own home and you know Derm's certainly not afraid to kind of present another type of body um to to cinema which again you know hats off to her this is a break you know a lot of a lot of people wouldn't feel that comfortable doing that and clearly she does and I, I did enjoy that but I would say you know one of the things I did in, uh, approve it really was the fact that um the composition of the shots I thought was thoroughly impressive at times but one of the things was I was so uninterested in what the characters were actually saying to each other I was more kind of just admiring the the camera setup, and in a way, is that not really you know a uh, I guess an indication that this is sort of style over substance? But for all this, and I can this is the thing about going back to this kind of whole kind of Paul Schrader argument. Um, I can see why people do admire this film. It was a big hit. I think it was the South by Southwest Festival that it kind of uh, she won an award and. Yeah, I can see why people would enjoy this film. However, it just simply wasn't for me. And it's because I think I found the... And I think it was just because I found these people so uninteresting. I simply did not care about them. And, you know, you've got to have an investment in the people on screen. Otherwise, films just simply fall flat. And I didn't in this case. And I, I wonder, really, um, whether or not Durnham has kind of been hyped up 
way too much. I know she's got a TV series apparently which has been commissioned with HBO. This is no Citizen Kane moment. I don't think there's much in the way of, of a sort of a genius. And on on show here, I think there is someone who's got a, a bit of promise perhaps, but I certainly hope that she doesn't have a kind of greatness forced on her because I think the other thing that will happen is that this is one that it could be one of those classic kind of crash and burn type careers. You know, we we sort of see them every now and then, and it, it's there has to be real talent, I think, there. And I think this is a promising talent. I don't think on this evidence that this is going to be someone who's going to kind of change the face of modern culture. But tiny furniture is an acquired taste, and I have to kind of salute the fact that obviously you know she's a young woman who's made this and that is a good thing I think that's a very positive step and one of the the real kind of liberating factors of the kind of the digital age is that people can get up and do this you know, not everyone's got fifty thousand dollars sitting around but it's certainly I think quite an inspirational thing for for people to get in there but overall I did not connect with this film at all and it was a lot of the part I was kind of just wishing that the film, and it's only an hour and a half, but it did feel like a lot longer. But that being said, this was a two disc um, edition. Now, the special features disc, um, which was on disc two, for some reason um, did not work. It actually come loose in the box. I don't know if it's got a scratch on it. I can't really see anything, but it won't load in any of my uh, DVD players. So I wasn't actually able to review the speak features, only the ones on um, the first disc. And there is a, an interview, that, that aforementioned interview with Paul Schrader, which is quite interesting, an interview with um, Nora Hepburn. Is it, what's the lady's name now? I can't remember. Nora, someone who's a film director. But I wasn't particularly bothered. And I wasn't that disappointed that I couldn't see the features, to be honest with you, because... Um, I really wasn't taken with tiny furniture. I don't really muster the enthusiasm to uh, see it. I did pick up the, just the standard edition DVD. Um, I understand that the Blu-ray is pretty good picture and all that kind of thing. So do check it out. I don't know whether or not, you know, um, Mumblecore is your thing. Although this isn't Mumblecore apparently because of the way it's shot and scripted. But I don't know, whatever the, whatever it is, I didn't particularly enjoy it. And um, I don't think I could honestly recommend that this is one that you were... Uh, pay full price for and again this is one of the, the 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 downsides of having a criterion collection addiction because every now and then you have to spend money on a film which you don't really enjoy and i know that i will never ever watch this film again and what is more annoying is because i know i will never sell my copy because being the absolute sad loser that i am i could not sleep at night knowing there was a spine number missing that my friends is the definition of a prick Okay, so occasionally being a Criterion Addict results in disappointment, but one of the joys of being a Criterion Addict is that sometimes you get some discs through the post of a film that you've never heard of before, you know absolutely nothing about, and you watch it and you are absolutely enthralled and obsessed with it. And that happened with the next film I'm going to talk about, also the next TV series I talked about, which was Criterion Spine number 598, Ray and Averna Fassbender's 1973 series, World on a Wire. Okay, so if you've ever read a novel by Philip K. Dick, you may like myself, or indeed you might be slightly more intelligent than myself, but certainly when I read anything by Philip K. Dick, I sometimes find I have to read the same chapter at least twice, and it has been known when I've been reading the book to go back a few, even more than a chapter, and read some other little bits, just to try and make head nor tail of what is going on. They are, in my eyes, certainly not 
what you would call casual reading. I think you have to have a degree of perseverance and indeed mental investment in them to really get the most out. Now, World on a Wire is not based on a Philip K. Dick novel, however, it is a very close cousin of his work. Certainly, I think it has inspired the same kind of confusion, exhilaration and mild frustration in me that I find when I read any Dick novels. Rainer Werner Fassbender, as a director, is always someone who is quite provocative. He is not someone who is a stranger to the Criterion Collection. I think he's got about six films. I've actually seen them all. And they're incredibly, sometimes hard to watch. Not in not in a kind of um, gory way or anything like that, but just because they're, they're quite uncomfortable films sometimes. He sort of, what he does, and I, I suppose, I don't know if this is what other people think, but certainly what I find is, he takes a situation, especially something like film like um, Ali Fear, it's the soul in which you have a Moroccan immigrant who's in his like late 20s fall in love with a pensioner and they have a relationship. And in a way, that's kind of, um, it, it's not comfortable to watch. You know, certainly the two um, aren't kind of aesthetically pleasing to see together. But what Fassbender does is that he sort of presents these this type of relationship as being completely normal. And for some people, I think they might be quite off put by that. Um, it certainly isn't kind of, as I said, it's not kind of easy to kind of get through. In a way, I suppose it's a bit like watching kind of a Lars von Trier film and it doesn't have that kind of edge of misogyny that I think he has. But World on a Wire is, I think it takes the very best from Fassbender and puts it into this kind of bizarre Philip K. Dick type science fiction setting. And Fassbender was a kind of prolific filmmaker, he made over 40 feature films and a number of plays, I think he was something like over 30 plays as well and all this, he actually died at the age of 37 which is a real kind of tragedy really but originally World War was made for German television and it was kind of considered lost for many years I know it was um, shared around a bit quite a lot on torrent sites and Criterion resurrected, I believe it got a cinema re-release in 2010 and I kind of loved this series. It was this kind of madness and craziness that Fassbender puts into his work, also kind of mixed with this science fiction edge, which, as I said before, I think was heavily influenced, or certainly, if not influenced, it seems very much part of that kind of Philip K. Dick world. And for anyone, you know, who's familiar with that, that is these kind of characters who have this kind of real struggle with kind of reality and paranoia and doubt and things like that. And this series, I thought, really made for a rewarding watch. Now, what's it actually all about? Well, in a kind of a near future, and this is the other thing, I, I don't know if we're kind of meant to look at this as being like a dystopian future or a kind of a parallel universe or whatever, but it takes place in a world which I, I suppose were you contemporary to 1973, you would recognise, but you certainly know there is something slightly off. And a giant supercomputer called the Simulacron 3 has been created in which there are 8,000 artificial humans living in the computer completely unaware of the fact that their environment is in fact artificial. They're all capable of individual thought and emotions and things like that. The idea of this computer is that it can be used to predict trends in the future and the information sold to companies for massive profits. So in effect, it would kind of negate the need for market research because it would be able to accurately tell what people will be wanting in 10 years or what have you. Now, the project director, Professor Volmer, who is 
on the verge of an incredible discovery, dies in a mysterious accident with understudy Dr. Fred Stittler taking over the project. Stittler begins to suspect there is something very strange going on. Some people don't recognise the people and there are sort of certain anomalies going on in the world around him. He begins to actually question whether the world in which he is living is actually real and the fact that they might be in the computer. Certainly people are able to jack into this world in a similar way they can in the Matrix. So he begins to question whether or not his reality is actually real at all. Now, so far this all does sound very Matrix, doesn't it? But I think World on a Wire is anything but. It's far more subtle and far more intelligent than the film, which is not to say I don't enjoy The Matrix. I certainly do. However, this is a type of science fiction where you don't get anything in the way of gadgets, really. There are there are some moments of people where they're kind of jacking into these kind of things where they wear this kind of like helmet with wires attached to it. But that's about as far as it goes in terms of its kind of technological nods to science fiction. It is very much a film about concepts and it's incredibly dialogue driven it's not kind of particularly action film or anything like that it's a film which kind of when i love science fiction it's it's about kind of ideas and things like that and it's about kind of i suppose making you think about things in a slightly different way now just thinking about that computer um now kind of like thinking about the kind of the notion of reality it's a kind of conversation that I, you know, I've had before with people. Normally, when I'm drunk, you know, we sort of like you begin to question, you know, what is the point in all this, and uh, you know, are we some kind of big experiment? I know it's something which uh, my girlfriend was in a book by Stephen Hawking, and he kind of alluded to, to a chapter, and there's a chapter in that we was talking about, you know, what if this was just this kind of big sort of simulation of some sort, or an experiment by an alien race? And in a way, I think the kind of um, it, there's an undercurrent of that in religion as well, isn't it? Because you know. It's that sense that there is this higher being which is controlling your life, or if not controlling your life, certainly looking out for you. And that this being was able to kind of create at will and destroy at will and do whatever it wants. And, you know, some people sort of say that, um, well, myself included, who would say that you know, that is one of the kind of the things about religion. It's one of the appeals of religion is that it gives apparent meaning to something that may seem um, kind of meaningless in a way. But science fiction kind of loves these types of questions and these kind of playful uh, situations because what would people do if they had a computer like this? And I think it's open to all kinds of um, misuse, isn't it? You know, certainly you could, if we had it in the developing world, you know, we could, you could be news, couldn't it, to, I suppose, further create massive divisions in wealth. One of the companies that they talk about is, um, I think it's like a steel company or something like that, who basically want to know, you know, what projects are going to be big in the next 20 years so they can actually start kind of preparing for it already. And what, what effect does that have on the now? Does the now become almost meaningless? Are you always looking into the future? And what about kind of like in terms of the military um, and sociological impacts of it? You know, what, what could you could you use this to predict who your enemies are? Are going to be in 20 years and then take them out really when they haven't actually done anything on you know kind of sociologically you know what about um using it as a form to, to see if members of society are going to commit murder you know and then you can actually kind of is there a certain type that's going to be more predisposed to it it's all very you know, I think you could probably get the thing I'm, I'm already as I'm saying this I'm already kind of thinking like minority report and you know obviously that kind of world of Philip K. Dick but 
Fassbender, I suppose, brings all this kind of madness and paranoia into Stidder, played brilliantly by Klaus Lurich, who goes from a kind of self-assured, kind of arrogant executive to a kind of paranoid, troubled soul. And I think, having seen some of Fassbender's films before, I think he was the perfect director for this, because it really does have an anarchic sense of humour, and this world has a kind of idiosyncratic craziness to it. There's just sort of some shots in it where you're sort of wondering why on earth that happened. And there's one in particular which I wanted to talk about where a secretary gets up and she's meant to go and get some papers. And the camera follows her as she walks all around this office to an office which is just behind her. And she could have literally just got up and walked into the office, but she goes all around the entire office to get there. And there's another scene where these kind of where uh, Stidder and this other guy sat on chairs and they just suddenly start spinning around on the chairs trying to have a conversation or another bit where Stidder gets up walks through a load of doors and then comes back in through another one into the scene whilst the scene's going on and just these kind of crazy little moments and I, I, there is I suppose in the film contained within the film a kernel that this might actually be a sort of a defect that's actually going on and it might actually be a mistake but the other thing is well you sort of you watch it and you you're perhaps trying to attach a meaning to it and really there isn't one to put to it it's just happening because it's happening for some I know that might really kind of annoy but it, for me I kind of love it it's funny it, I did find it genuinely amusing just for how kind of aesthetically crazy it actually looked but what it does is it makes you question the reality of what you're seeing because I still sort of comes to the I suppose the, the realization that his world might not be real I actually kind of found myself thinking that before there was that revelation ever made. And certainly, I think this is a film where I wouldn't say I kind of understood it completely on the first thing. I've only seen it once, and I think you'd have to see it more, way more than that to kind of get to grips with it, because there's a lot of things going on on a lot of levels. But it's such good fun when you're watching a film like this, because you genuinely feel like you're watching something that you've never seen before. And familiarity, obviously, it's something which is... Um, a bit bit of a problem with films sometimes because we've all seen like you know the Rocky story so many times. I watched The Warrior recently, really enjoyed it. But yeah, I, I've seen that story before. But when you see something, and I did enjoy the film by the way, but it is nice when you sit down and you watch something that is genuinely unlike anything you've ever really kind of seen before. And I, what I sort of enjoyed about the Stiller character is that he's kind of descending into this madness. Is that you kind of emphasise with his predicament because. He goes from being this kind of quasi-god figure who can create what he wants and control this little world to someone who might just be a simple pawn in his own game. And it's this kind of devolution of his role. He goes from the top to the bottom, really. In a way, you, you, you can kind of empathise with it because you know, imagine what it would be like if you kind of like all your, your kind of roles and responsibilities and your sense of purpose were kind of stripped away from you. And you were kind of left with nothing. Now, it is a, a kind of a terrifying kind of experience, uh, thought, really, to not be in control. And the kind of, you know, the idea of um, not being able to, you know, knowing that you might be mad is, I suppose, even more terrifying than not knowing you're mad, if that makes any kind of sense. But what I kind of really got into with this was the direction of Fassbender, because although this was made for a television, I, there is such a great deal of style on the show and this doesn't seem like some kind of phoned in um, directorial effort. Some of the, on the making of actually, there's an excellent making of documentary, just gets into some of the, um, what they were doing in some of the shots and you can tell, I mean it was shot on 16mm but 
it doesn't look like a kind of TV movie at all. That the, the uh, there's lots of kind of brilliant um, dolly shots and some zooms in and pans. And were I to sort of um, liken it to another directorial work, I, I've heard Kubrick mentioned a few times. Um, certainly on, on the uh, Criterion website, they reference that, and I would kind of agree with that because um, it did remind me a little bit of a Clockwork Orange and. I know where Clockwork Orange was filmed, it's a place called Thamesmead in London, which is a very bizarre um, housing development project type of a place. And uh, basically, when this film was made, they went out to Paris, and there was a lot of construction going on in Paris at the time, and they found um, kind of like apartment blocks where they hadn't kind of done all the gardens yet. And they really do create this other world where obviously it's based in the real world, i.e. this one. But it does look like it could be um, something that was kind of invented in a computer. It's really engaging to see this. And you just sort of learn little things. Like there's a scene where um, it's a wide shot of a car's kind of driving out of a garage. And the, the image is actually wobbling a little bit. And at first when I saw it, I was a little bit sort of like, well, what, what on earth is going on there? And I was trying to kind of work out what it was doing. And I thought perhaps it was a mistake. Because as I understand, there uh, quite an extensive um, restoration took place on this. And then I found out in the making of... They were actually putting a Bunsen burner in just just underneath the lens of the camera, and it was kind of creating that kind of heat wave effect. But it just looked so bizarre and just quirky that, in the same way, I think sometimes with Stanley Kubrick, and if you think about Clockwork Orange again, where lots of the shots are kind of very well composed and there's very slow dollies in, then suddenly he'll go handheld, and it's very similar with this. There's sort of this sort of change in styles. It doesn't sort of stick to one thing or the other, and. As I said, some of the dolly shots are kind of quite quick and uh, the way the cameras follow characters around. And you can see Fassbender are really having fun with the locations too, some of the interior locations, because there's lots of kind of um, bars and stuff like that they visit. And there's one which is basically a bar with a swimming pool in it. And you can see people jumping into the swimming pool, but they're not kind of doing it with any prowess. They're literally just like belly flopping into the pool. And... It's, it's kind of like, I said it before, it's just kind of like crazy kind of sense of humour going on, but what I enjoy about this type of things is that some you can get you can fall into the trap of massive over-interpretation, or you can just sort of watch it and kind of just let it go over you, notice it, but don't kind of digest it too much. And what you then find in the film is that I think it kind of builds towards a whole of an experience which is what I think World on a Wire is. It's a very much an experience. You are experiencing someone's descent into a kind of madness and then a realisation of how they can get out of this madness. And what these kind of little quirks are, there might be a very good reason for why they are actually happening in the context of the story. Likewise, they might just be there because Fassbender's having a bit of a joke with you that is the type of cinema of... I don't know, I keep referring to this as cinema and a film, and it, I, 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 it was shown theatrically or whatever, but I mean, I, I certainly think... It, I kind of see it as being a, just a very long film. It is about two hours, 20 minutes, but... It is um, an experience of which will be open to so many different interpretations from people that seen it. Some people might see a group of black men dancing with their tops off next to naked girls in a nightclub as kind of a bit strange or a bit funny or you might sort of look at that and find it quite amusing you know, everyone's going to have a very different opinion on what they see in here and I for one really enjoyed it I think it was a quite at times I think I think the first half I said sorry I think I said it was two hours 20 minutes it's not it's about um it's about three and a three hours 40 minutes so I just realized but 
I think the first part is perhaps a little bit better than the second part. They're both about an hour and 40 minutes each. And the first part I thought was kind of had a nice little conclusion to it. And the second part, perhaps it does wander a little bit. And I think it might sort of lose its way. Certainly there's a bit of it where I was um, I sort of thinking, had it kind of lost me entirely. But it does build up to a very satisfying ending in which... I was kind of I, I, when I read when I sorry when I watched the, the documentary I sort of thought about it a little bit more and it it, it is an ending which I think it, it perhaps is open to some interpretation but I certainly think there is a kind of um, a a little bit of a, a comment being made on the world in which we do actually live now and certainly how humans actually kind of perceive their life because we're always kind of uh, it seems to me a lot of people they spend a lot of their time kind of imagining better things you know oh, I really want to win the lottery um this week and you know who doesn't but you know if we were to win the lottery you know is it going to really be the epic brilliant change that we think is going to be it could obviously go all go entirely wrong and I think certainly this ending hints at the fact that the world that we kind of we're in at the moment might just be as good or as boring as another better one that we might be hoping for. But as a science fiction fan, I was certainly very much down with this. I would say this is a proper piece of science fiction. This isn't the kind of the spectacle science fiction that people might be used to. It's far more cerebral than that. It's far more subtle. And it just shows, I, I, again, I kind of come back, in a way, I suppose, talk about Tiny Furniture but I find this type of thing quite inspirational because... It reminds you that you don't need to have um, props and kind of gadgets to make science fiction. You can, if you have a concept which is strong enough, something like a film like Primer, you need only dialogue really to make your film, to emphasise the science fiction elements of the film. But overall, this was a fantastic um, little set it more than made up for the disappointment of having to buy tiny furniture it's i bought the dvd of it and it was originally from the 16 millimeter as i said and they have done a, um, a pretty good restoration job it's not the type of um, transfer that's going to blow you away it is framed through a um, television so it's a 4-3 frame they haven't kind of um, extended it into a 69 or anything like that and it's quite a grainy picture sound is mono um as i understand i think the blu-ray.com review was quite positive for the uh the Blu-ray edition of it. It does have some brilliant, pretty good features of it. A 53-minute uh, documentary, which I can certainly recommend. Um, some interviews with um, a German film scholar. And there is a pretty interesting essay as well by a guy called Eric Halter on it. Overall, I think this is um, really highly recommended. I absolutely as well, just on a quick side note, really loved the cover of this one. I think it was a tiny furniture one was rubbish, actually. But this one, um, absolutely brilliant. Remind me of the kind of the saw bass stuff, which is quite um, fitting, bearing in mind the film I will be talking about in a minute. Anyway, certainly worth checking out. And um, if you do see it as well, um, please do get in contact with me and tell me your thoughts, because I'd be really interested to hear what other people make of it. OK, so next up on to spine number 599, which was another director who's no uh, stranger to the Criterion Collection. And it would be Louis Mao's 1994 film Vanya on 42nd Street. Now, in truth, I have not really got a great deal to say about this film because it's, it's nothing to do with the fact of its quality or not. But because I think it's something which you really kind of is such a kind of niche pick this one and such an acquired taste that really I, I kind of um I think I think it's something which 
if you're just going to kind of casually watch it, I don't think it's really going to, it holds much really for someone who has a casual interest in film. You have to really be into the subject matter, I think, to um, thoroughly enjoy it. And essentially what Vanya on 42nd Street is about is, it is a group of actors on a old abandoned stage in a, about, I think it was actually a derelict um, theatre, um, performing a version of the Anton Chekhov play Uncle Vanya which was actually translated by David Mamet and that's in itself I suppose quite an interesting uh, combination of people Chekhov and David Mamet you know, um, certainly uh, although several uh, decades separate the two um, certainly uh, it's quite interesting I think when you know, someone is kind of uh, as talented as David Mamet goes back and translates a play by Anton Chekhov but Essentially, what the film is about is just really watching this performance on a stage of the play. And I read an interview, I'm uh, sorry, read a review of the film by Todd McCarthy from Variety, who he kind of, whilst he sort of enjoyed it, he said that he didn't really kind of see the kind of the cinematic element of it. Basically, it is just film theatre. And I don't think in a, in, a, in a way that that is really a, a negative thing to say about the film. I think it is really kind of indicative of the fact that this really is um, quite a, I suppose, a unique uh, piece of work and quite an interesting film to be included in the collection. Some of the actors taking, place are, uh, sorry, taking part in it are Wallace Shawn, Andre Gregory, Julianne Moore, Larry Pine, Phoebe Brand, Lynn Cohen, George Gaines, Brooke Smith and Manda Jaffrey. And it really is just you know watching the play be performed, and one of the things about it is is that Louis Malley, he's he's a director who I when I in kind of preparation really for this episode, I kind of went back and I watched a lot of his films, and he really is a chameleon of cinema because he kind of does everything you can possibly think from kind of melodramas to documentaries, and what you sort of well what I found with his films anyway is that some of them um, I've really really enjoyed. Elevator to the Gallows and the Lovers in particular, and certainly the documentaries are made. Um, Criterion put well, they put out on the Eclipse label um, a series of these documentaries, and some of them are really interesting too. But other times I've watched some of these films and I've really not enjoyed them. Um, uh, Zanz de la Metro, kind of hated, which is kind of like absurdist kind of comedy. Um, Black Moon, which was a film as I was watching it, I was tweeting out and uh, messages about it, and people were trying to kind of get back to me. We're trying to. Um, Agreeing with the fact that it's one of the, probably one of the most bizarrest films, and you, you sort of watch uh, a film like *Elevated to the Gallows*, which is one of his first films, and then *Black Moon*, and it's like they've been made by someone completely separate. But I really like that in directors. I like, I like, I, that's why one of the reasons why I love Werner Herzog is that you know, I want to be a filmmaker, I want to be a director, and I always look at people like kind of like Steven Spielberg and people like, and they just sort of stick to the same type of film over and over again. They just seem to. Um, and they almost kind of like waste the opportunity that's been presented to them. I know Steven Spielberg is probably very happy with what he does, but he doesn't really kind of take massive risks any of the time. And I, it's, it, I find it slightly disappointing, really, when uh, people do that. And Louis Mal is certainly one of those who experiments with you know, the, the art of film. And this film is definitely an experiment. If I were to liken it to anyone, uh, to any other film, sorry, it would be something like Looking for Richard, the, the Al Pacino documentary, which, although I enjoy, I do 
find it quite unintentionally hilarious at times with kind of how serious the actors are taking it. But essentially the idea was with this was that the, the kind of um, theatre director Andre Gregory kind of what he wanted to do was basically get some actors together so they could try and explore and understand um, Chekhov and kind of get a better kind of grip of, as to what it was about and the idea of doing it in this abandoned theatre there's no there's no kind of costumes or anything like that there's no audience to speak of so basically what they wanted to do was to see it with all the kind of like normal trappings of theatre kind of taken away you know, could they sort of sort of begin to understand this play and kind of um and appreciate the work and get a deeper understanding of it the story is actually about a rich family who live in the country and at the head of the family is Shubikov played by George Gaines. And I was, when I was watching um, Volume 42nd Street I sat there trying to remember where I knew this guy from and it suddenly dawned on me where that was and of course he's Commandant LaSalle from Police Academy and as soon as I got that in my head I couldn't really kind of look at him quite seriously enough but basically his character is a rich aristocrat who lives out in the country he has a young wife played by uh, Julianne Moore called Yelena and basically him and his family and friends sit around discussing the meaning of their life and has their lives been of any worth whatsoever there are some kind of subplots going on. Um, Shubhanath's daughter, played by Brooke Smith, Sonia, um, is actually in love with a charismatic doctor called Dr Astroff, played by Larry Pine. Larry Pine loves Yelena. Um, then there's Uncle Vanya, who feels aggrieved that the um, vast estate that they live on isn't going to be left to him and things like that. And it is quite, I suppose, it's quite an interesting story. It is quite um, heavy, which any, obviously you can imagine uh, a play of that kind of nature, something by Chekhov about, uh, you know, has one's life been worth leading? It's not exactly going to be kind of throwaway, disposable entertainment. But I did get quite into it. And um, I think this is a film which is, if you are into acting and you're into your theatre, I think you'll get a far greater appreciation out of it. As I said, I think if you're just kind of a casual, going into this kind of casually, I don't think perhaps you're going to quite appreciate it enough. I'm kind of, I, you know, I'm not massively into theatre. I'm not massively into kind of the mechanics of acting. It was quite interesting, I suppose, seeing when you kind of strip everything away. And as a film, basically, this is, of course, stripping away all the artifice that we associate with cinema. It was really um, quite interesting, actually, because the other day on... Um, if for, any, for any of you who are listening who are on Facebook, you might be familiar with um, Kurt Fabich, who is a uh, chap in Canada. He posted up on his Facebook page that he just watched Dogville and had really enjoyed it. And I remember seeing, when I saw Dogville, the Lars von Trier film, how quickly I sort of got over the fact that this was essentially the filming of a play. There are no sets in Dogville. Um, just the sound effects are actually added. And the, the only thing you see, really, basically, is kind of streets um, kind of drawn out on chalk on a... Uh, on a stage and I was amazed how quickly I kind of got all over all over that and just started to enjoy the story and this kind of kind of happened with Vanya on 42nd Street I didn't I don't need to see the costumes although you know, it's obviously got a period setting that doesn't matter because the, the actors just wear kind of normal clothing and I completely I, did, I didn't care for any of that and I just started to enjoy the performances and the story for what it was which is obviously quite interesting but 
at two hours, I have to admit, even I, I am quite open-minded when it comes to films. Even I was beginning to um, check the what the clock, as it were. It is really there's there's very little in the way of kind of cinematic flair to it. And it isn't a particularly cinematic film, and really, I don't think it's trying to be. I think this is just really um, an experiment, really, a theatrical experience and a cinematic experience, and it does work. I would say that it is in by no means is it a poor piece of work, although. I would, if I was going to um, recommend it to someone, sort of just kind of caveat it by saying that I don't think this is the type of thing that you will enjoy on a Friday, kind of Saturday night, when you're just looking to kind of um, switch off, as it were. It is, um, I suppose, it does suffer from something which I think, uh, looking for Richard does, there is a kind of um, lovey darling importance about it which you know look how serious this is and look how meaningful this is. and I'm sure it is for those who are taking part and as I said if you are kind of interested in theatre then I would imagine that it is quite um a enriching watch but I think to the layman such as myself it's perhaps just a little bit too much of a peek into a world which really I'm but perhaps to the casual observer, I think this might be quite an alienating experience on just how much you can enjoy and appreciate and get out of it. But, you know, as a film experience, I, I suppose one of the things that I got out of it is um, just how how really, and it's something I've mentioned before several times before in other episodes as well, is how breaking away from the artifice of cinema is something which I, I really think we're in this kind of crux at the moment where Hollywood films are just so loud and heavy and so... There's so much going on in them, on the screen, as it were, and we just really don't need that. We need to sort of you know, strip them down again. Certainly, this film proves that you don't need loads of effects. You don't need massive kind of sets or costumes to really tell an effective, engaging story. But the disc itself, um, the actually the Blu-ray of this uh, release got five out of five on um, Blu-ray.com. I didn't actually pick up Blu-ray. I just got the standard edition DVD. I was more than happy with the. Um, the picture quality and the sound doesn't really surprise me. This isn't wasn't shot anamorphically, um, but it is a 16:9 frame, so it does fill the screen, and it looks really good. You know, the only thing I would say, I was a little bit disappointed. This, this kind of theatre they're taking place in, it's um, it is quite run down and quite a uh, interesting looking building. I'd like to see a little bit more of that, but what the hell, you know, it is what it is. Um, extras wise, this isn't one of the uh, more laden Criterion releases. There is a making of it's about half an hour long quite interesting just to call the actors and things like talking about their experiences and what they kind of got out of it it's quite interesting um but overall this is a fairly bare bones but there was a trailer as well which um, i didn't actually watch but you know um overall a fairly bare bones release as i understand i did actually see the other day i think um the blu-ray of this had come down um quite a lot in price on amazon.com so if you were interested but definitely go and have a look at some of the other films of louis Malley because um he, yeah, like I said, he, he's not someone who kind of really sticks to the same thing and his films really are quite unique on an individual basis and certainly he is someone who's I discovered through the Criterion Collection and whose work I have really come to appreciate in the past few years. Okay, on to spine number 600 and obviously I think this landmark number deserved a release that really... I suppose lived up to just how impressive the Criterion Collection coming in to get to 600 releases, and I, I suppose it's kind of time to take stock. Really, and let's not forget, you know, Criterion isn't you know, a huge company, and uh, I know that a lot of these distributors struggle, and obviously I think they've kind of 
got a fairly healthy cult around them criterion. So I think it's fitting that for the 600 release they would um, put out something which was a little bit special. And certainly this film is because Otto Premier's 1959 film Anatomy of a Murder was the film chosen to be spine number 600 and I have to be honest I have not seen this film before I came into it I knew of it and I actually had the the film poster um, before the rather brilliant Saul Bass one which uh, adorned my wall when I was at university but I never got around to seeing this film and I don't know why and it was, perhaps it was just one of those ones where it was one of those classics that I'd heard of so much was a classic and just could uh, never really find the time to watch. But I ordered the Blu-ray of this, and I will get to that in a minute. But to say that seeing this was a joy would probably be an understatement. I could not think of a better way of spending almost two hours and 40 minutes because... I've heard so much about Anatomy of Murder and I don't think I really appreciated just how good a film this was and it truly is a a fitting film to represent such a great landmark. If you haven't seen Anatomy of Murder, I'll give you a brief description of the story. It's James Stewart, playing James Stewart essentially, is a small town Michigan lawyer and he takes on the case of a young army lieutenant who has been accused of murdering a local bar owner because he believes that the bar owner raped his wife. Now, what is established quite early on is the fact that the lieutenant, called Mannion, played by Ben Gazzara, has actually killed, he has committed the murder, he did walk into the bar, he did shoot the guy and James Stewart, his character called Paul, Bil Paul Bilger, takes on the case knowing that basically he has to get his client off and this is the thing about Anatomy of Murder is that James Stewart is trying to get this guy off but this guy is guilty, he did do the crime and the thing I'd like to kind of say about Anatomy of Murder and I, I won't be spoiling the film this by Lieutenant Mallion is not a particularly nice person he is arrogant he is cocksure there is plenty of evidence to suggest that he may actually be quite abusive towards his wife clearly he has a certain disdain for her throughout and you don't like him, you don't necessarily want him to win the case, but what it is basically, this is Jimmy Stewart's film. It is Jimmy Stewart who you want to win the case, and the film has a kind of a moral ambiguity, which I'll get into um, in a little bit more detail in a minute, but what I love about it is that the courtroom film, obviously the whole kind of, normally the kind of premise of is that the, the lawyer takes the case and it's about getting the guy off and you it's one of this story where you we kind of the suspense is you know are they going to get off and certainly there is this suspenseful element on this but it is almost secondary to the story and what, what, what I found quite strange was about it because Premier what he does is he does not he does not make this a black and white story of good versus evil this is not going to be a film really I think about being justice being done because the prosecution who are going after Manion have got a perfectly 
reasonable case. Now, we don't like them necessarily. Um, George C. Scott is one of the uh, prosecution team, and he is uh, a fairly slippery customer, and certainly this is classic George C. Scott. What an actor as well he is. I, every time I see some of his work, I just love him even more. My, my, one of my favourite all-time films is Patton, and he just seems to have this kind of... Um, strength about him. I mean, his voice never really kind of like gets above a shout in this film, but he's absolutely devastating. So, I mean, in fact, it's Jimmy Stewart who's the one who's getting kind of quite animated, but we don't like the uh, the prosecution team, but we don't like them because we like Jimmy Stewart so much. And what Anatomy of a Murder does is that it doesn't kind of patronise. We know from the off this guy has committed this crime. Was he fully in control of himself when he did it? Well, there is evidence which is presented by a doctor to suggest that he wasn't, that he was kind of temporarily insane. However, as a kind of prosecution show, he there is evidence to suggest that he is a person with a history of violence, that this wasn't some kind of temporary uh, him taking leave of his senses in a kind of out of the ordinary event. It was just basically the fact that he killed this guy in a jealous rage. And likewise, the film does not, I, I, I think although we can kind of assume perhaps that um, his wife is telling the truth that she was raped, this is never conclusively proved. And one of the things I love about it, it's a courtroom film that involves you as well because you are listening to the evidence trying to make up your mind. And I think this is the genius of it really in that in one respect, you are watching it for the crime and the case that is being presented and you are trying to make up your own mind. But also you could kind of end up kind of conflicting yourself because you want Jimmy Stewart to come through and win the case. What the film does is that it shows law basically as being a incredibly complex and objective arena and in a way I suppose one of the things I was thinking as I was watching it was is is trying someone in court even a fair or indeed reliable way of actually establishing whether someone is guilty or innocent because one of the things is every single word that is muttered by someone who is taking the witness stand is then I suppose, spun into meaning something else and kind of counter-arguments are brought in. And everything that's being said by both teams has a certain degree of interpretation about it. And one of the things that kind of really got me in this was how there's a moment where Jimmy Stewart says something and the, ju the judge turns to the jury and he says, don't um, consider that when you're thinking about your verdict. And Jimmy Stewart goes and sits down and Mannion says to him, well, how can they be told not to think about it? And he says, well, they can't and they won't. And basically you're seeing someone who is, who knows how the system works and has a basic sense of psychology and how they can use that to manipulate the minds of the jury. And it's something I've actually considered before. I have a friend who is a barrister and I, I, you know, I've talked to him quite a lot about kind of his experiences in court. And often when you know, the judge said, well, that's it. They, someone will make something. And the judge said, well, that's inadmissible. Ignore it. And one of the things that um, he's actually said to me is, how can people not actually tell? You can't just forget and ignore something. That that little kernel, that little, that little m 
piece of information will be in your head when you are thinking about the case. So even if you are told not to think about it, I can't see how then that that little kind of piece of information won't affect how you interpret things that go on during a trial. And this is really what anatomy of murder does. It gets into this kind of mechanics, the psychology of legal cases. And as I said, really, I, I, don't, I don't think much has changed since when this film was made to now. And basically how, how kind of... Um, you know, lawyers and barristers work. I was—I remember watching um, the o, the sorry the OJ trial, and just seeing the kind of the theatre and the drama that the lawyers were using to paint this picture of OJ as this innocent man. I remember, you know, um, Johnny Cochran. What was it? You know, if the if the glove doesn't fit, you can't commit. And it's just all kind of like, um, or sorry, that if the judge if the glove doesn't fit, you cannot convict or something was was what he used to say. And what brilliant little kind of phrase of a line you can imagine him thinking that one up you know months before the case began and it kind of you know it would play on your mind wouldn't it as the jury you know over you know saying that over and over again now we all know that um oj was guilty and i i, I don't uh i don't think that's kind of really much of a controversial statement and you can just see how you know the guy with the, the amount of money and the bit of charisma of his legal team you know he was able to get over it but the first hour of the film is basically set up with Stuart, you know, Jimmy Stewart. I keep calling him, you know, Jimmy Stewart. He does have, you know, his character was his name, but Jimmy Stewart plays Jimmy Stewart in every film, let's be honest. And just seeing this again, I, I, my girlfriend and I watched um, It's a Wonderful Life on Christmas Day, you know, with that sad. And uh, I, you, you do love the guy. He's, he, he, he's just so likeable and... He has a kind of a quirkiness to him. I've heard people describe him as a little bit like Tom Hanks, but I, I think he's way, way, way better than that. But anyway, the first hour is Stuart kind of taking the case. And I, I love his kind of his character because he's this kind of uh, lawyer who he was once the district attorney. But now he's kind of he's just more interested in fishing and kind of... Uh, going about his daily routine and he has a secretary who hasn't been paid for a while and uh, she kind of sticks by him dead loyally and it's it's kind of endearing stuff and when you kind of meet Mannion it is him who virtually puts the idea that he was temporarily insane into Mannion's head. Mannion doesn't kind of like um, try and deny it or try and make any excuse from the fact that he was so annoyed that this guy raped his wife that he went out and killed him and again you kind of reach that kind of ethical thing you know he wasn't sort of aware at the time really that he could even kind of plea to be um let off on the grounds of temporary insanity it's actually you know, it's jimmy stewart who says to him you this is the avenue we're going he actually puts the idea in his head and actually kind of coaches him in a way for them to go down this route but once the film moves into the court i suppose i can only talk about kind of um what i was just saying about varney and 42nd street is that there's no kind of flashy camera movements. Basically, the camera just kind of dollies in and out as the defence and the prosecution team kind of move out into the court and we kind of pan to the whoever it is who's sitting in the witness chair and we pan over to the judge and the jury. And what kind of grips you? It's not because of the, the, the inherent drama of that's been kind of artificially created with the kind of the sudden cuts or anything like that. It's just listening to these people talk and logically try and work through the case to get the result they want. And it is at 
absolutely beyond gripping. I was so invested in it that it was kind of, like I said really, I felt like I was genuinely involved in coming up with a decision regarding the case. Now, I, I, if you have seen the film, you will know how it kind of ends up. What I kind of enjoyed about it was the fact that, without giving too much away, I actually didn't agree with the outcome of the film um, for, for what I consider to be very kind of uh, genuine reasons and that's the, the genius of it is that you could easily someone could say well I, I have the complete opposite opinion that I do and you could kind of argue it out like they do in the film but it's it's a piece of work that doesn't feel like in any way cliched whatsoever it's a film that doesn't really seem to have any kind of cliched elements about it. And definitely the Judge Weaver, Judge Weaver who is the presiding judge in the case, he's kind of this, um, you expect him, don't you? In so, in so many films, judges are these complete kind of despotic arseholes who are kind of constantly smashing their hammers, screaming order and things like that. This guy isn't like that at all. He's jovial. He is kind of witty. He's fair, obviously, as a judge that he needs to be. And there's a moment in the um, film, it, it does have actually manage to stop and have some kind of moments of uh, genuine amusement um, as to he calls over the teams and, and they have to kind of come up with a um, another word for panties because the judge is actually a little bit concerned that saying it in the uh, court will cause everyone to laugh. So no one can kind of come up with an idea as what to say. So he suddenly turns around and he says, well, we're going to have to start talking about Mrs. Mannion's panties now. And everyone starts laughing. And it's this brilliant moment where he says, right, you've had your laugh, you know, but whenever I say this again, don't you dare find it funny. And it's just this brilliant moment because it completely, it feels so genuine. And it's just, just stops and has time to breathe and inject these very, very human moments into it. And again, that's something I remember from the OJ case. I think it was Judge Ito who was the uh, the guy in charge of that one. I remember he had all these kind of, um, what are those things called? Egg timer, uh, various sizes all over his desk. And he was quite a, uh, he was quite a uh, unique type of person. I remember a lot of times during the case, he would have a bit of a chuckle at things. And you sort of forget that, you know, he, oh, it seems so deadly serious, doesn't it? You know, a murder trial, but... Yeah, that there are these kind of moments where people kind of are able to stop and you know, appreciate a little bit of humour. But what I can honestly say about Anatomy of Murder is that it will pull you in directions that I think you didn't realise that it would go. I, I, I think there's this a kind of expectation. If you haven't seen the film like I hadn't before I went into watching this, you might just think this is going to be another kind of little man versus the evil world type of film and it isn't at all quite the contrary in fact I think it's um, a very morally ambiguous work you often hear about it being kind of talked about as this kind of cl this classic piece of American cinema and I can't really kind of disagree with that at all I don't think I've ever watched a film that has had me so invested in what is going on and has made me so I, in a way kind of walk out of it with this feeling of well I've reached my conclusion, and that conclusion is how I think, but someone else can completely have a different um, opinion, and that's completely... And it, I guess, in a way, it's quite a kind of an uncomfortable way of thinking, isn't it? When it? Especially when it's something to do with the law, because, as I said before, you know, were I now a member of a jury and I was seeing something very similar, 
I, I think I would know if I was being exploited in a way. And I remember talking to my friend who was a barrister who said that, you know, it is a tactic to kind of, you know, put up smoke screens um, by kind of the um, prosecution defence teams, which, you know, there could have been instances, I mean, mercifully, what my friend was saying was that he don't think he's ever been involved in a case where an innocent person has gone down. But I'm sure it does happen. You know, there are massive miscarriages of justice and it might just be a few single words that have managed to manipulate someone into making the wrong decision. But the film, I think, just on its technical aspects as well, just to kind of uh, talk about that, the direction is, as I said, it, there's no bombast to it. It's very simple. It's it's wasn't filmed in a scope frame. Um, I think the cinematography by Sam Levitt is absolutely um, spot on for what this film needs to be. The kind of the lighting is it's, it's, in the courtroom. It's just seemed very natural. It doesn't seem like a particularly kind of expressionistic film. I don't mean that in a bad way. And one of the things I would say about it is, I urge you to buy this on Blu-ray because. My God, what a viewing experience it was. The image is so clear. And this, again, hats off to Criterion because this, there, it looks, I've said it before, but I'll say it again. For Christ's sake, when you do a restoration of a film like this, studios should not ever think that by scrubbing off all the noise and polishing up the image that we are going to kind of consider that to be a, a high definition experience. There is a fine grain texture intact and all you basically get out of this is that they have gone to the original source material, struck off a, a decent print and then just cleared up what was there and it looks absolutely beautiful. The black and white photography was literally jumping off my television and as well not only that, but the sound on this film is an absolute joy. It had a score by Duke Ellington, and there was a there is a mono soundtrack, and there's also a 5.1 soundtrack. And I've said before, I don't really like it when they kind of artificially create 5.1 soundtracks out of mono uh, material. But in this case, I think it actually really worked well. I know a few purists who would probably enjoy the mono aureal. Um, soundtrack certainly on Blu-ray.com they did, but I listened to I listened to it on the 5.1, and the fidelity of the music and the dialogue was just so clear that it's every time I sort of I, I sometimes feel guilty about buying Blu-rays because I've I've um, upgraded so many of my old DVD collection. I just today actually bought No Country for Old Men again, and it was only like four pounds off um, eBay, but. I sometimes feel a little guilty and then when I watch them it's like I'm watching the film afresh again and this is one of the things obviously I've never seen it before but I think if you were familiar with um, Anatomy of a Murder and you were to buy this Blu-ray I certainly think it would be like discovering it all over again because I was just in awe of how it looked and I, I sort of I wanted to kind of uh, my girlfriend had actually gone to bed when I was watching this but I wanted to wake her up and just say look just come look at this but she probably wouldn't have appreciated it at one o'clock in the morning but an absolute stunning um, audio-visual presentation. This is a, if you buy the normal DVD, it's a two-disc um, edition. There are extras-wise, you get an interview with Otto Primo's uh, biographer, Foster Hutch. That's quite interesting. And one of the things you found out, out on that, actually, was that he was actually a, um, a trained lawyer. So I would imagine um, there is, you know, I suppose the, the kind of authenticity of the film may owe a lot to that. You get a... Um, 
expression of the Duke Ellington score. Any, uh, a brilliant score as well, by the way. It's kind of heavily jazz influenced. Um, there is a also a little kind of feature about the designer Saul Bass and um, his relationship with uh, Premier League. And I actually love Saul Bass's work. And I can really recommend there's a book that's come out in the UK, which is a... I might be out in America as well. I hope it is. But it's actually just all his old um, film posters and things like that with kind of annotations absolutely brilliant coffee table but um, it, it was it cost 30 quid and I'm, I'm I sort of I'm half tempted to buy another copy and just cut the pages out and stick them off the wall because it looks so good I'm, I might have to uh, invest in a um, high quality scanner but you get other things as well um, there's some new newsreel footage from the set which is okay um, some interviews from 1967 um, with Premier and just some Beside, uh, behind the scenes photography which is all quite good and there's a uh, booklet as well that was included um, which was quite an interesting read but overall this was a fantastic Criterion release in terms of the picture quality alone I don't know whether or not there will be a Blu-ray that comes out this year that will impress me as much as this and I know obviously we're only in like uh, whatever were we this was only in February, as it were, but that might seem quite a bold statement. But for some, for someone to top this, um, especially for an old film, I would be really, really surprised. And looking on the Criterion um, website at the moment, you can actually pick up the Blu-ray for thirty-one dollars, which I think um, I'm trying to say that's probably about eighteen pounds if you want to get it imported and bring it over to England. But that is a bargain all day long. Okay, so what would be my pick of the month? Now, I have agonised over this decision and and you might have been able to tell that from what I just said about Anatomy of Murder, I was somewhat enamoured with this um, release and I don't think it will come as much surprise that were I to only pick up one uh, Criterion release of from February, it would have to be Anatomy of a Murder. Even if you've seen it before, I think this will be a treat. Um, it, it'd be a double dip that is way, way, way worth it. But running a close second had to be World on a Wire because that's one of those series which were criterion to lose the license for it. I could easily imagine it kind of fill, uh, falling into obscurity again. And the thing about criterion releases, and I have... Um, found this out much to great cost is the fact that when they become uh, out of print and kind of fall into the buying them secondhand category you will pay an obscene amount of money for them thank god i got my uh, thank god i got my copy of the third man blu-ray when i did because i've seen it on floating around on amazon things like that it's like 80 pounds and what's even worse is that studio canal put out a version of the blu-ray and it's nowhere near as good as the criterion release so Anatomy of a Murder is going to be my pick of the month, hotly followed by World on a Wire. And I know it's kind of cheating, but really, I would recommend picking up both. Because World on a Wire is something, I can generally say, I think it's something that you won't have seen before. And it's quite a unique experience. You might hate it. I certainly loved it. Likewise, I think you could probably say that about Tiny Furniture. But... But overall, I think February was a pretty damn good month for Criterion. There was also a Blu-ray upgrade coming out of Le Chate and Sans Soleil by Chris Marker. Um, that's a really interesting um, couple of films, actually, which I would um, certainly recommend checking out. I haven't upgraded as yet. I don't know if I will, to be honest with you, because um, I think... Uh, 
I, I'm not entirely sure that I kind of need to see either of them again in Blu-ray, but um, certainly worth checking. If you haven't seen them before, certainly well worth checking out. Anyway, that is going to be it for this episode of the 24 Frames cast. I will be back with you next week with an episode. Just again, make sure you check out the exclusive pages on the blog because a new episode did go up on there, which was a look at Diamonds Are Forever. You can follow me on Twitter at 24framescast. You can email me 24framescast at gmail.com and don't forget to go over the blog at 24framescast.blogspot.com. Many thanks for listening and I will be talking to you again soon. Bye.